0: Listening to NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. Please go online to Vital, where you can download supplementary case notes to accompany this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. Regan Cooley, who is a stroke neurologist from Canada. Hi Regan. Hi John, how's it going? Uh, good, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Um, what I wanted to do is do something slightly different today. Rather than discuss one case in detail, I was going to discuss a few cases that are presented to the TIA clinic. Uh, first of all, before we discuss the cases, uh, are there any kind of general rules you have or an approach to the clinic or any challenges that, the, that you face?
1: Yeah, I mean, TIA clinic is always an interesting place because you can see many things, uh, sometimes the majority of which are not TIA. TIA is a challenge in itself because there's no true test that you can do to prove it. So we need to rely on our training and our skills and our intuition to go back to the history, which is your most important uh, tool in this diagnosis. Physical exam is probably not helpful because by definition a TIA has resolved and there's unlikely to be any deficits. hmm
0: Excellent. So let's just get straight into the cases, and hopefully we'll discuss some of the the, the things you look for uh, as clinical pointers. So first case is a 64-year-old right-handed female who's referred to the clinic by a GP. So she's got a background history of a previous stroke two years earlier, and that was due to a left ICA dissection. But she made a good uh, functional recovery, and she was managed with antiplatelet therapy. Mm -hmm. Various follow-up scans showed resolution of that uh, ICA dissection. So the reason she's come back to clinic is with new symptoms. So she's got recurrent episodes of altered sensation affecting the right face. And within a few seconds, she notices the right hand is also involved. She says they they typically will last uh, anywhere between 20 to 30 seconds. And she's had 10 episodes over the last three months, but had four in quick succession, which is why the GP got slightly concerned and referred her in. So is there any more information that you'd want to know at this stage?
1: So I'd want to know more about the symptoms. Uh, you kind of alluded to the fact that it, it sounds like there's a bit of a progression rather than reaching reaching maximal intensity initially, which is a bit of a red flag as well for TIA. Mm. So are these symptoms in moving in a Jacksonian type fashion mm-hmm. uh, from one area on the homunculus to another? Uh, positive versus negative symptoms? Any impairment of consciousness with this?
0: Okay, she tells you that uh, in terms of the uh, the nature of progression of the symptoms, you're, as you said, it starts in the face and within a few seconds uh, goes into the hand, but there is that kind of progression yeah, of the okay. symptoms. Uh, and in terms of the nature of these symptoms, so she describes it as a, a altered sensation. When you dig a little deeper, what she's actually describing is a pins and needles sensation. Mm-hmm. So do those sort of bits of information help at all there?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not always true, especially in younger people, but one of my big differentiators is positive versus negative symptoms. Stroke and TIA, which are on the same spectrum, uh mainly producing a negative symptom. So absence of sensation, absence of strength, absence of coordination rather than a positive symptom. Things that can produce positive symptoms are more in keeping with depolarization like seizure or migraine. Mm -hmm. So the fact that she is experiencing positive symptoms are leaning more in that direction. Again, the fact that these are very stereotyped episodes happening over and over and over makes TIA very unlikely Mm -hmm. I mean I guess anything can happen but the likelihood of an ischemic event going to the exact same area over and over and over Mm -hmm. is highly unlikely with a few rare exceptions
0: okay and do you think um, the previous stroke could be relevant in this case?
1: Oh absolutely so the previous stroke puts her at high risk for post-stroke epilepsy. Anybody who has had a previous stroke puts them at high risk for stroke and TIA. But the fact that she's had a stroke in that distribution with recurrent events, high likelihood for post-stroke epilepsy. And Mm -hmm. these are very much in keeping with seizure type symptoms.
0: Okay. So your your clinical diagnosis in this case would be post-stroke epilepsy. Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. And
1: because she's had a structural change, I personally would continue anti-epileptics, likely lifelong in this case. And, and then, what would
0: you give as a first line for your...
1: So, because post-stroke epilepsy can be very hard to control. Lamotrigine would be a good choice. Her symptoms are recurrent and they're increasing in, um, in presentation, like a, increasing in number of recurrences. However, because they're positive sensory symptoms only, we do have time to titrate it up to a reasonable level. Uh, Keper would also be a very good choice in this case too.
0: Okay. So uh, in this case, the first patient you're seeing in the TIA clinic today, then, we don't think is a TIA, but it's a mimic of TIA that we can see, which is uh, seizure. And your key points really here would be the nature of the symptoms being positive symptoms, uh, the recurrent stereotype nature of these events, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that they've had, they tend to cluster together would be, would be factors that you'd look for there.
1: Absolutely. And post-stroke, she's in a high, high-risk category for these types of events.
0: Excellent. So, good. So, uh, the second patient uh, in the clinic is a 78-year-old right-handed male. So, he's been referred in by the GP. So, he describes a transient episode of visual loss affecting his right eye. Uh, This is a one-off episode. He doesn't describe any associated headache or nausea, and he's never had anything like this before. He estimates the duration was about five minutes, and there was full resolution afterwards. Uh, So, as you kind of alluded to earlier, his examination now is normal. Mm -hmm. He's got a history of hypertension and hypercholesterolemia, and he's also a smoker. He's on ramapril and atorvastatin, as you might imagine, Mm. for those comorbidities. Uh, And his examination is entirely normal. So let's just uh, think about visual loss as a presenting symptom and trying to localize it. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you able to sort of Have a stab at this one.
1: Yeah, so again, it's going to go back to the history, and we're going to push this gentleman really hard to differentiate between whether it was a hemifield loss or a monocular visual loss. Uh, Generally, monocular visual loss is a world of ophthalmology, with a few exceptions that we have to be very vigilant for. Uh, This sounds very concerning for one, but we should probably test this gentleman for both of the diagnoses that I would consider. Mm He's describing a transient visual loss that returns. It sounds very much like Amarosis Fugax. I'd ask him to describe it. Uh, The classic description of it being coming down like a curtain from what I've read and learned throughout my residency uh, is not the most common description. Often graying out, it can come from the bottom up, it can come from the center out, but either way we have again a negative symptom affecting the vision in one eye that then resolves. Mm. Uh, I'd really push them a bit harder with questions whether it was associated with a headache or any symptoms of temporal tenderness or things that can go along the line of giant cell arteritis, because that is another condition that is very treatable and dangerous that we have to rule out in this presentation.
0: Mm -hmm. And so just going back there, so you mentioned about whether this is a hemifield problem versus a monocular problem. Could patients confuse the two?
1: Yeah, commonly... Both patients and referring physicians, and perhaps the ED physician as well, describe loss in let's say left eye. So going back to the patient, you a really good question that you can ask them is: did the visual loss persist with closing either eye in succession? I feel it's a very natural response when there's a when there's a visual problem that a normal human tries to see which eye it's in. If you're missing part of your vision, you close one eye to see if it still persists and then try the other eye. Uh, Generally, they're able to help differentiate between Hmm. a monocular or hemifield loss. In this certain situation, if we're considering amaurosis fugax or a hemifield loss, our investigations are still going to be the same, but mm-hmm. our consideration is going to be different about yeah. the localization of the lesion.
0: So as, as we are confirming, this is a monocular uh, mm-hmm. visual problem, and um, there is no systemic complaints, there is no headache, and an ESR was done as well, and, and that was negative. So this would be, uh, I guess, in the TIA clinic favoring uh, amaurosis fugax as a diagnosis, mm-hmm. Um, just tell us a little bit more about how you would uh, manage that or what your priorities are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Amorosis Fugax is a classic TIA syndrome. Uh, it's a harbinger of something worse to come. So, uh, first step, we need to visualize the brain and the associated blood vessels. And this gentleman with his history, I'm very concerned about his carotid arteries. that can sneak up and cover the ophthalmic artery. Uh, also, you can get emboli from the carotid artery going to the central retinal artery as well. Uh, so, number one, I'd like to get a CT and CTA for him and check his fasting lipids, uh, fasting glucose, HbA1c. He's got a few small vessel risk factors that we should try to optimize as well, including smoking, high blood pressure. Mm. Uh, we always consider exercise and diet in the TIA clinic as well.
0: So, this is, uh, this is a test that needs to be done sooner rather than later
1: then? Absolutely. Uh, revascularization of the carotid artery is very time-dependent according to the research. We see a vast drop-off after 14 days in the benefit, uh, the risk-benefit ratio of carotid endarterectomy.
0: Okay, good. Uh, so case three uh, that comes to the clinic. So uh, this is a little bit of an unusual one. So 58-year-old is referred to clinic following a suspected TIA. So part of his usual routine was to go out and have an early morning cold water swim, which he did as uh, per usual. And then it was noted by others around the swim pool area that he became acutely confused and was acting strange. So he managed to get information from the ED department that shortly after the swim, he became confused. A friend who he was with says he was the patient would repetitively question where he was and what he was doing there. He could be reassured, but then would ask the same question again and again. Um, he was uh, fully conscious and alert, but just didn't seem able to uh, retain the information that he was being told. He was seen in ED uh, within half an hour, rushed in as a stroke code, and no focal neurological deficit was seen on examination, but uh, you know, cognitive assessment was done. Um, so in that, they could see that he was alert, he was able to answer questions about who he was when his, uh testing his attention was unimpaired, so he could do the months of the years backwards, and he was able to register items but had no recall even after uh, one minute. Mm. Um, naming and comprehension were unimpaired, and knowledge of semantic information, such as the capital of France, etc., was also unimpaired. And within a few hours, he made a complete recovery, and the patient is now with you in clinic, and he has no recollection of this episode at all, other than it was a funny turn that he had. He admits he'd been under immense stress with COVID-19 and the restructuring at the hospital and things, but he's an otherwise fit and healthy uh, patient. So the referral question just simply states, is this a TIA or could this be a fugue state? Mm-hmm. So what do you think?
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, off, off the very top, it sounds like one of the most interesting syndromes that you see in neurology. And once you see it, you, you'll never forget it. Just going back to the referral question of whether this is a TIA, it would be very unlikely anatomically for it to be a TIA. So what we have here is a gentleman who has no focal deficit aside from impairment of recall. It doesn't seem like he has any impairment of long-term memory or semantic information along with no focal neurologic deficit. So for this to be a TIA, you would have to deprive both temporal lobes which would be a basilar Uh, You could potentially get an artery of Percheron going to both thalami that could do this as well, but along with that you would expect other focal neurologic deficits accompanying. So, Mm -hmm. isolated memory impairment that returned is very unlikely to be a TIA. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a fugue state or not, it does not sound in keeping with the fugue state. Fugue state um, would be impairment of who he was as a human along with basic knowledge. Uh, so, I think that would be far less likely as well.
0: Okay. So, you said uh, this kind of points towards a, an actual known syndrome uh, that you may be alluding to there. So, yeah, what, what what would your. Yeah. So, the, the syndrome is very be.
1: much a description of what's going on at the time. It's a transient global amnesia, would be the syndrome. Uh, it's very interesting anatomically, and now that we have MRI imaging, even more interesting. Uh, so it's an impairment, a metabolic impairment of the hippocampi bilaterally that you can see on MRI. Uh, from what I've read, I've never seen one in person. But if you get a DWI at the time of the event, you may see DWI changes that are mm-hmm. not correlated with ADC during the impairment of memory bilateral in the hippocampi. Mm.
0: Okay. And... Um, What's the sort of prognosis for this chap, if this is the, a one-off event, or is this something that he mm-hmm. should expect to happen again?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So the prognosis for transient global amnesia has excellent resolution. Um, unfortunately, they are unable to remember the time that was impaired during the, the metabolic impairment. Uh, going back to the basic science of it, you can understand that if you are unable to create a memory, then you're unable to store them. There's no memory to store, I suppose. So that time will likely be gone for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, The literature suggests that there is extension of memory, even retrograde sometimes, with high-level memory testing, uh, but not to the point that impairs their function in life. And that impairment of memory, even anterograde memory, can persist for several months in the future, but again, not to the point that impairs them in life. Kind of a recovery of the hippocampi as they go forward. They say the recurrence rate is somewhere around 5 to 10%, depending on what you read. I've never seen a recurrence. Generally, people are very satisfied, and you can send them home. And next time you see them, if you ever see them, they're very delighted that it's never returned again, and they just refer to it as kind of a funny turn. If it does recur on a regular basis, then you need to be thinking about something. A slightly more sinister. I suppose. Yeah. And
0: um, so, I, what would that would what would that be from your?
1: Then you'd be starting to think about transient epileptic amnesia, okay. which I have never seen, and it's exceedingly rare. Uh, but if you have recurrent events like this, uh, it's definitely the diagnosis to consider.
0: And in those cases, you'd probably be pushing to do an MRI to look for sort a of structural lesion. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we're three patients down in clinic and only one TIA so far, so we'll we'll do the last last, um, patient (laughs) now. So uh, the last case is a 24-year-old female referred to the TIA clinic. So she's got no medical history otherwise. She reports transient neurological symptoms over the last three months, which have been episodic in nature. So they typically start with altered vision in her left eye, and she describes a patch of visual loss and the outer aspect of her vision that starts to spread out over the course of a few seconds and minutes. Associated with that, she has noticed some flashing light and some shimmering at the edges of her vision. On a few occasions with that, she's not- had associated tingling in her right arm and leg, and as well as a feeling of heaviness down the right side of her body. If you ask her further, she'll tell you she also has some mild word-finding difficulties associated with those symptoms. And on a majority of them, she will develop a headache, either during or shortly after this, which is typical of previous migraines she's suffered with. So those are Mm -hmm. headaches associated with uh, photophobia and nausea and generally wanting to lie down. Mm -hmm. But on a few occasions, she's barely had any headache at all, and that's what's prompted her to see the GP. Um, So I think... She's otherwise, as I said, fit and well. She's got a long-standing history of menstrual-associated uh, migraines. Her only medication is the oral contraceptive pill, and she's a social smoker. Mm-hmm. So I let's just start. I would imagine that a 24-year-old is an unlikely age to see in the TA clinic. Absolutely. So, so maybe yeah. your suspicion from the outset is slightly reduced in yeah. a case like yeah. this.
1: Yeah. If you think about demographics of people, her she's in the very low likelihood category. However... This would not be an uncommon presentation to the TIA clinic. Okay, what?
0: Um, so she's got transient neurological mm-hmm. symptoms, uh, and what would be your your thoughts on the the nature of her particular complaint mm-hmm. and, and possible diagnosis?
1: Yeah. So we'd go back to the very basic of the history and talk to her about the visual complaints. So she is describing positive phenomenon in a hemi field distribution. Um, that progress rather than starting at their maximal intensity in a negative fashion. So again, we're kind of diverging from the pathway of TIA and going along the pathway of something much more common. Uh, Her description of the headaches that follow are very in keeping with migraine. Um, She is in a a demographic that has a very high likelihood for something like migraine, a Mm -hmm. young woman, especially on the oral contraceptive pill. Now we need to circle back to that oral contraceptive pill when we move further along in discussing migraine management for her. Mm. Uh, She doesn't have any other associated deficit. There's no weakness. There's no visual loss. She returns to her basic or her baseline after every episode mm-hmm. so these to me are very unconcerning for TIA mm-hmm. because of their repetitiveness their stereotypy and their association with headache
0: mm. okay so you would uh, you would hear favor migraine over um over over TIA I yeah, take it for sure right now and it sounds
1: like migraine with or is the leading diagnosis
0: and I guess the other differentials that you said seizure also would seem unlikely in in this particular case yeah so I think one of the confusing things with migraine is lots of people know migraine as a headache syndrome, mm-hmm. but we know that a lot of patients that have migraine will get more than just a headache, including transient neurological symptoms. Um, what's your experience in terms of uh, managing patients uh, of the nature of the aura? Like, do you, can, it, can it happen like this where it can occur without headaches?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The more we learn about migraine, the less we maybe know about it. Uh, the aura can present as many, many different things to the point where sometimes the term aura or migraine itself can be kind of a catch-all for things that we don't fully understand, but we are pretty confident or benign. Um, migraine with aura can present with or without headache. Uh, co- the, the classic picture is an aura, of visual, sensory, or motor that spreads, it lasts less than an hour, and it is followed by a headache within an hour, a headache that lasts 3 to 24, or pardon me, 3 to 72 hours, I believe, mm-hmm. along with the other diagnostic criteria. Um, you do commonly see it without headache after the aura. And in young people who have had previous migraines, as well as old people, uh, you see a bit of a dynamic process of migraine, and they can change throughout people's lifespan.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so let's let's get on with how we would uh, manage mm-hmm. uh, this particular patient. So, um, first of all, uh, you mentioned about the oral contraceptive pills. So,
1: yeah, so somebody who is, has migraine with aura, the literature—pardon me—the literature suggests that there is an increase of stroke or MI uh, about two times in those that have it. I think four times a month, mm-hmm. and if they have it greater than that, it's up to four times higher risk of stroke and MI. In that age category, now when you crunch the actual absolute numbers, that's a small cate- small number of people, but with a catastrophic outcome, you kind of want to lean away from mm-hmm. increasing any chance of that. So, I for her, I would recommend against the oral contraceptive pill, especially in the modern era where we do have other choices out there, such as the Marina coil or IUD.
0: Okay, and um, if she's getting, if she's continuing to get frequent attacks like this, I presume there are various migraine preventatives that you would. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, so it sounds like they're happening for her in a semi-common fashion. How many is she getting? Month?
0: Uh, so at the moment, she's going through, uh, yeah, once or twice uh, a week. So. Oh, yeah,
1: that's that's quite, that's getting up there. Uh, yeah. Debilitating headaches, however frequently you're getting them, can can impact your life. So I think she's a good candidate for preventative therapy as well as symptomatic therapy, which is my two approach to treating migraines. Symptomatic therapy, including simple analgesics and or migraine medications such as triptans should be taken when the headaches are starting or in her case should be taken when the aura begins to try to abort the headache. Um, I would not really lean towards triptans for her either. I would use simple analgesics and see where we can go for that. Uh, but she definitely warrants a trial of uh, preventive medication at this point.
0: Excellent. So she's the she's the last patient in clinic today, so thanks very much for going through those cases with us. Um, I think you've given us a few sort of talk, learning points along the way. For students who perhaps haven't been to a TIA clinic yet or haven't encountered these sorts of diagnoses, are there any kind of guiding principles you'd have or anything that you think is the, the key messages?
1: Yeah, the TIA clinic is a great place to see all sorts of neurology, as this, uh, this podcast showed. Uh, the basic or the most important thing to use in the TIA clinic would be the history, going back to the history over and over again, trusting the patient and listening to what they have to say.
0: Excellent. Cheers. Thanks very much, Regan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions about this episode, please contact us at neuropodcases at gmail.com. Look out for future podcast episodes coming soon.